Olivia Rotigliano tells us the three top-selling Christmas-themed children's books released for the holiday season in 1957 were all stories of absence, loss, and theft. The Christmas That Almost Wasn't by humorist Ogden Nash, The Year Without a Santa Claus by soon-to-be Pulitzer Prize-winning author Phyllis McGinley, and How the Grinch Stole Christmas by the beloved children's author Dr. Seuss. The three stories are all self-conscious about the precariousness of abundance, reflecting the decade's newfound culture of plenty, the post-war snowball of American prosperity, and the proliferation of the middle class through the fear that it all might easily get taken away. Nash, McGinley, and Geisel, all born within years of one another in the very beginning of the 20th century, had already witnessed two world wars two periods of excessive prosperity, one nationally traumatic economic nosedive, and the ongoing threat of intercontinental nuclear war. Too familiar by mid-century that having could, in a flash, become having not. In The Christmas That Almost Wasn't and The Year Without a Santa Claus, Christmas disappears because of varying degrees of bureaucratic malfeasance, In the former, a usurper to the throne imprisons the ruler who officiates at the Christmas celebration, thereby ending the holiday. In the latter, Santa Claus's desire to slack off on his job and take a vacation means that Christmas won't happen. In both stories, children are able to fix these respective leadership problems and save the holiday. But how the Grinch stole Christmas goes down a bit differently. It tells the story of an outsider with no formal power who deliberately connives to swipe Christmas from those who celebrate it, precisely because it bothers him that they do. The Grinch is a crotchety hermit who lives alone on a mountain that overlooks a village, Whoville, that happily celebrates Christmas annually. He watches them celebrate year after year until he figures that if he steals everything from them, they won't be able to celebrate. But when he makes off with all their decorations, presents, and foodstuffs, he finds that they still celebrate Christmas either way and do so gratefully and joyfully. As the narrator says, And he puzzled three hours till his puzzler was sore, then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. The verdict in How the Grinch Stole Christmas is that Christmas is indelible and non-material. It is ethereal and internal. It is about community and love and gratefulness, and so cannot be determined by material factors. The celebration will still happen, no matter what he does to try to stop it. How the Grinch Stole Christmas was said to have been inspired this way. I was brushing my teeth on the morning of the 26th of the last December, Geisel is quoted in the December 1957 edition of Red Book, when I noticed a very Grinchish countenance in the mirror. It was Seuss. There I was. So I wrote about my sour friend, the Grinch, to see if I could rediscover something about Christmas that obviously I'd lost. And he hoped that the story could do that for some of the rest of us. All that from Olivia Rutiliano, an editor at Crime, reads, In her article, she mentions something that's important for our purposes here. She describes the Grinch holed up on his mountain 
detesting the long hours of noise that Christmas will be sure to bring as the Who's sing and play with their cacophonous instruments and toys. The Grinch hears the Christmas music then not as something joyful, but irritating to the max, at least for a while. Now, we're not certainly saying that Matt's acquaintance was in any way like the Grinch, but he really didn't like the sounds of a big band. He told Matt so, but Matt held out the hope that there'd be something that could win his friend over. Turns out there was. It was music of the holidays that made the friend's heart three times larger when it came to the sound of the big band. And we're about to hear the story and how that encounter between friends led to a brand new piece of music that actually centers on the Grinch and his opening up to the joys, including the sounds of the holiday in Whoville. Jazz musician and composer Matt Ashlishan, who leads the Water Gap Jazz Orchestra, invites us to a concert at East Stroudsburg University this weekend with special guests and great music. We had a chance to speak with him by phone about the Nutcracker and the Nutty Grinch. This all goes back to a, a conversation I had with a local business owner. I would uh, go into his place often and we would discuss music and, and things like that. And he told me that he did not like any big band recordings. And I challenged him and said that there's so many different types of big band recordings out there that there is something that he likes guarantee it and then i think the next a week or two went by and i went in again and he said you know what you were right and it was the duke ellington nutcracker that he heard that was something that he liked and basically that's what put it in my head and that's that's what i decided to do and it's something that connects with young people it connects with older people it connects with people that have no idea what jazz is because duke ellington was so good at you know stating the themes and uh, the things that people know and they can identify with. So it's really just an all-around winner as far as, you know, if we want to get people involved with jazz, teach them about jazz, let them know that, that this kind of thing exists and maybe this is the thing that exposes them to it for the first time and, and changes how they feel about it. In terms of the orchestration, what Ellington did, Billy Strayhorn joining in in this collaboration, the story of the Nutcracker could give you lots of wonderful, playful ways of using instruments. What did they do with it? Gosh, they did, they did so many things. The, the most notable thing, I think, at least among musicians, is his use of the woodwind section. Not just saxophones, of course, but there's a, a wooden flute of some kind that I play on piccolo. And then the whole sax section, or most of them, have clarinets of some sort, bass clarinet, regular clarinets uh, all throughout which gives it a you know it kind of bridges the gap between a jazz thing and then the classical music side of things because clarinet is often an instrument that we associate with classical music and orchestra and things like that so that may be why he did it and of course they used clarinets a lot in the section anyway but it just seems that it fits musically for the stuff that they wrote and they didn't do the whole ballet but they did the movements that we often associate with the suite right there's nine movements of the Duke Ellington version, and I mean, what more do you need? It hits, it hits pretty much everything. He uh, he names them some some fun names as well, but they're all there, and, and they're all represented in the best way possible. And the musicians must really 
be in the holiday spirit when you all get together and say, oh, we're going to do it again. We love to. I mean, everybody wants to come back, don't they? Yeah. And you know, the thing about the monthly big band night that we have, or really any big band situation, you play the same music. Like we, we play the music of Phil Woods. We play the music of Dick Cohn. Uh, I love Bob Minster's stuff. I bring that to the band. Uh, there's a bunch of things, but we, we play a lot of things all the time. And this is almost worked in that you, you can only play it once a year, no matter what. And it's such a good piece of music and written so well that not only does the band really enjoy playing it, but we do it, and then we're forced to leave it alone for 12 months. And then we come back, and it's, it's fresh again. So it's really uh, it's a treat. And now, I mean, the first, the first year that we did it, you know, we all know the recording, and then we played it live. And I was like, wow, there it is. But now we know it's coming, and it really does not change the anticipation at all. It just kind of makes it better. And we know the ballet tells a story, and you have integrated that into the presentation, right? I think Susan Jeffers did an illustration book that I found somewhere, and I I honestly can't even remember where I found it. I must have gone to the mall one year or something, but I was looking for a concise, kind of playful version of the story because there's all sorts. I mean, there's young children's books, like really short versions to really extensive versions. So I found something in the middle, and it's a great book with great illustrations, of course, and that's basically what I use to tell the story of the Nutcracker in between each of these movements. I just kind of chopped it up, and I give it to Nancy Reed and Edward Ellington to read in between our movements as we go which adds a whole a whole nother. I mean, as far as I know, I mean, I haven't heard anybody else do something like this. So I think we're unique in that respect. And of course, having Duke Ellington's grandson, Edward, here to do it with us is, is another element altogether. Since you mentioned him, how has he been making music and keeping his grandfather's legacy alive? Well, he has the, the Duke Ellington Legacy Band, which is, I believe, where Nancy Reed met him. And uh, I'm not sure how active they are, but he's a guitar player. And he never played with Duke, I don't think, but he was, he was like the, um, I don't even know what you'd call it, but like carried everybody's cases and all their luggage and stuff and loaded the bus and everything else. So he was around the band and traveled with them and tells some great stories backstage about that. So, you know, he, he talks to us all about it and keeps the whole thing alive and really brings a, just a, an element of like that it's real, you know, and all this stuff happened. Cause a lot of times, I mean, I know for me, like I hear about these, these people in history and you know that they were a thing but it's just not the same as being there and being around the people and hearing about it. So when you have somebody like that who is so directly connected to him to come and just be a part of it, it, it really uh, changes your perspective on, on the history of the movie. What do some of the listeners say afterwards? Everything I hear, I mean, everybody just has a great time. You know, because Edward and Nancy are very good friends, and they like to goof off. And they do it while they're reading the story. So it is by no means a serious concert. You know, I mean, everyone, everyone's there to have a good time. The holidays, of course, adds a lot to that. But, you know, the band is happy. Like, we're happy playing what we're playing. Edward and Nancy are happy. I mean, Edward, like, messes up his lines, I think, on purpose at this point, just so they can have a, a shot at each other, you know. <laughs> it's just, you know, when, when we're having a great time, the audience is having a great time and vice versa. We kind of just feed off of each other. So it's, it's, a, it's a very good time by all. And instead of just bringing in other maybe holiday arrangements or tunes and so forth, you were overtaken with the image of the Grinch, and you have created a whole piece inspired by The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. Yeah, we did the Ellington 
suite for a few years. I think it was two or three. And we always did like an intro piece. And I can't even really remember the circumstances, but I, I got hooked on this somehow and arranged You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch for the intro piece. And after I did that, I got thinking about what Ellington and Strayhorn did and figured, well, why not? You know, I mean, they, they could do it. I mean, I can't, I can't do it on the same level that, that they did, but I could at least try and do it with the equivalent of what they used, which is, you know, a popular, a popular music piece, play, production, show, whatever you want to call it, uh, of the time. And, you know, the Grinch has coincidentally been, been making a, a serious comeback in pop culture in the past couple of years, so I guess it was good timing. But uh, yeah, that's what I did. So it's a four-movement piece, which basically depicts the major themes of that, of that story. We're speaking about classical music and jazz and so forth, Matt, but for example, with Peter and the Wolf, Prokofiev assigned the clarinet to the cat, the oboe to the duck, Grandpapa is the bassoon, timpani, the hunters, and so on. So each of the characters had an instrument that was associated with them. When we experience the Grinch, do you bring out the Grinchness with a particular instrument? Well, yeah, well, if I, if I go back and look through it, I'd say that You're a Mean One, Mr. Grinch features myself on alto, and it's not really the instrument that's, that's depicting the Grinch. I mean, some would say it's me. So uh, I am featuring me on that one. Uh, let's see, as we go through, the second movement is called Welcome Christmas, and that is the song that the Who's sing down in Whoville. And I did add, I mean, I have a flute that's playing the main melody in that, and I guess that could be, that could be um, synonymous of Cindy Lou Who, being like a, a small child, you know. And then I have the entire saxophone section playing clarinet later in that piece, and I did that because it kind of gives it like a dopey kind of vibe, you know, in the range that they're playing in. And that's the song, you know, I use this to depict how the Grinch is transforming from his mean self to his happy self. And his dog, Max, of course, is along for the ride here. So I, I use that to, to depict the dopey nature of, of the, whole, the whole dynamic there. And then um, the last movement is, it's, it's a drum feature because... That is what depicts the Grinch and the dog coming down the side of those big mountains on the sleigh with the toys and stuff and, and a bunch of chaos. So, I mean, that, that kind of made sense to me to have the drums be an integral part of that. So, yeah, I mean, there is a connection and there was, there was some thought put into to what happened, where, and what I used. So now people want to hear it. Probably people are asking you, you're going to do the Grinch this year too? Mm-hmm. Of course, of course. And actually, it's, it's always going to be a little different because I'm, I'm a little insane music writing-wise. I mean, I'm always going to tweak things, adjust things. I mean, nothing's ever right. And I'm, I'm actually, when you called me for this, I'm sitting here in front of the computer right now trying to finish up some, some of the last finishing touches. I always get, get thinking about things. So even if you heard it last year, I mean, for those that really pay attention, there'll be some, some slight differences. I mean, the whole thing is basically the same, but I'm always changing something. So yeah, yeah there's always something to look forward to you're not like Mozart, maybe, maybe you are, where it's all in your head and then you just have to write it down. Not like Mozart in any way. It's actually a very laborious process. There's occasions where I get ideas and it can kind of write itself for a little bit, but it's always, you know, constantly going back and 
wondering if this is right or that's right or how can I change it or just, you know, banging my head against the wall for days or weeks at a time trying to think of what comes next. And I mean, I have a, a folder of just, you know, manuscript paper with sketches and things I'm trying and things that didn't work and, you know, trying to work this out or that out. And so it's really, it's really a lot for me. And I'm a little more analytical anyway. I write more from like the last movement that I was talking about is a very simple melody. So I just took elements of how the melody is constructed and used that to create different harmonies or different background figures or rhythms or things like that that kind of feed the piece as we go along. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. And the whole the whole project of all four movements, I think, spanned around three years. I mean, not not consistently working on it every day for three years, but, you know, with the breaks you have to take and waiting for things to come instead of forcing it and things like that. It's a long time. The idea that you are presenting a program that really helps shape the way people experience the holiday now. They are smiling, they're happy, they laugh probably because they're thinking of what they remember of the Grinch, uh, maybe the drums and the coming down the mountain and all those sorts of things and how you've done that. That must be a lovely feeling for you to have to be a giver of gifts like that and all of your musicians You all try so hard and give your very best and really want to light some sparks and make people's holidays better. Yeah, I mean, and that's really what it's all about, right? I mean, we, you know, we we are musicians and a lot of musicians get, I think, a bad rap for being a little self-centered and and not really caring about who's listening or, or what. But at the end of the day, the most rewarding experience is when we realize what we're doing for other people that are watching or listening to us you know i mean it really is about what we can provide and um it gives you a sense of purpose you know i mean i wouldn't have spent three years on this thing if it didn't do that you know i didn't do this for me i mean i did it to have something to to give to people and it's it's much more meaningful than just writing you know like a if you think of a tune and you write a big man chart and you think of another tune and you write a big man chart but this has a whole a whole thing attached to it that can hopefully communicate with people on a on a whole nother level in a bunch of different ways. And, you know, also trying to do the same thing that Ellington did in that maybe this is what can provide that connection to people who are being introduced to jazz that, that didn't know it existed or didn't know that things like this could be represented in such a way. And, and maybe that will also be the springboard for somebody else to, to become interested in this kind of music. I wonder, Matt, if you could tell us where you do this and when you do this. Okay, this this year we're doing it just like last year. We have two days that we're doing it. So it's Saturday, December 16th, and that's going to be at 7 p.m. at East Stroudsburg University in the Cecilia Cohen Recital Hall of Fine and Performing Arts. And Sunday will be at the Bickford Theater at Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. And that'll be a matinee show at 3 p.m. And if you go to the Water Gap Jazz Orchestra webpage, which is wgjo.org, I have ticket links all there. So you can get everything in one place. Or, of course, you can get tickets at the door, either location. And I love it that they want you back at the museum. That's super, too. Yeah, and that just kind of speaks to the whole, the whole thing about tradition. You know, and we were doing this at ESU for a few years, and we just happened to... It was actually very odd how it how it happened. I was doing an interview on another station one morning at like 6.30 or 7 a.m. And this guy that books the, the stuff for Bigford Theater heard me as he was driving like two or three hours 
through upstate New York or something like that, and then and then called me to see if we were available to do the the show there. And of course we did, and it was the same response that we had at ESU. And now we're back to do that again. So it's it's contagious. Jazz musician and composer Matt Vashlishan, who leads the Water Gap Jazz Orchestra, inviting us to a concert at East Stroudsburg University this weekend with special guest narrators Edward Ellington III, grandson of Duke Ellington, and jazz vocalist Nancy Reed. And as we heard, there is a website to visit, wgjo.org. That's for the Water Gap Jazz Orchestra, wgjo.org. There will also be a performance Sunday, so the Saturday performance at the Cecilia S. Cohen Recital Hall at East Stroudsburg University will get underway at 7. And then on Sunday, you can hear it at 3 o'clock at the Bickford Theater at the Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. For all the information, wgjo.org. And we're hearing something from the Ellington Nutcracker Suite that will be on the program. But you know, as we've just heard, the Grinch Suite by Matt Vashlishan will be part of the pairing. The Grinch Suite and the Duke Ellington Nutcracker Suite, performed by the Water Gap Jazz Orchestra under the direction of Matt Vashlishan, Saturday, December 16th at 7 in the ESU Fine and Performing Arts Building, the Cecilia S. Cohen Recital Hall. And then the next day, Sunday, December 17th at 3, it's the Bickford Theater at the Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. For more information on the web, wgjo.org, wgjo.org. 